previously on All Relative, Defining Diego. This is really very huge for the birth mothers. To give a child, to relinquish a child, is very, very difficult. Other agencies were charging 50000 to, you know, $75,000. It's a huge red flag. It tells me that this is absolutely a business. Please let Isabel know that if, if we had the money, we would be happy to have Diego's sister. So, Diego, there was this one night when you were seven. I think you were already asleep. I got this phone call, and it was about Isabel. You knew she was pregnant with... We knew that she was, she was going to have a baby in August. She told us that. Okay, so that's our, that's our baby. Yeah, that's your baby. It was 2005, and Karen McDonald had heard about us from a radio story I'd done. She was in the process of adopting Isabel's new baby. That's the baby Isabel had been carrying when we saw her a couple years earlier. The baby she'd asked us to raise. Isabel thought he'd be a girl, but he turned out to be a boy. The McDonald's were going to name him Gavin. Karen said they already had a biological sibling of yours. Gavin would be their second. The first time she reached out, I thought she was nuts. I mean, I almost didn't respond. But then she emailed this picture it was a photocopy of Isabel holding an infant who looked just like you. Yeah, that was Carter. That was Carter. He was five years younger than you. So we started talking and emailing about how much you were like her boys and how all of you loved to jump and climb. We thought we knew your biological family. But when Karen called from Georgia, I didn't know what to think. But Karen wanted to get together, and we said, okay. Yeah, I remember when we met. I was in fourth grade. Yeah, Carter was almost four, and Gavin, just about two. I remember you guys picked me up from school, and we ended up driving to their hotel. And, you know, Dan wasn't sure about the whole thing, but that's typical Dan. It sure is. I'm excited and nervous. What if I don't like him? Probably won't, Dad. You know, Diego, I was pretty nervous, too. And I remember Karen and her husband, Paul, were at the hotel waiting for us. And when we got there, these two little boys peeked out from behind them. I could see right away they were mini versions of you. I mean, they had sturdy builds and thick, dark hair and dimples. And the older one, Carter, he had glasses. The two of them were wearing matching khaki short sets. Seeing them together, I just can't get over how much they look a lot alike. Amazing. You boys bonded instantly. Up in their room, you went tearing around like you'd been doing it all your lives. He's looking, Carter. He can't find you, Carter. Uh-oh, he's pulling a double trick on you. <laughs> One of the things is that it wasn't as random like the dinner group. It was blood. It was biology. So it was this kind of intimacy I'd felt with Julia, only this time we could speak the same language. My brothers looked up to me, and I had a lot of fun with them, just horsing around. I remember one day, we took you to a park by the river, and you and Carter saw those giant cottonwood trees, and you didn't just climb them, 
you scaled them. And Carter was just following you around. He wanted to do everything that you did, just like you used to do with Julia. Do you notice how much you guys look like each other? <laughs> Me and Carter and Gavin look a lot like, except for the glasses and age. Same hair, same eye color, same face, basically. We're not made of the same DNA, but... Similar. Similar, a lot similar. Climbing DNA, same. I guess we see the McDonald's about as often as we see Isabel, every few years. And it's cool to be like an older brother to Carter and Gavin. I feel protective of them, and I want to be a good role model. And we even know Isabel relinquished another sibling after you, a boy. But his family hasn't wanted to stay close like the McDonald's have. All of this is just another way adoptive families aren't like most other families. I'm an only child with siblings all over the place, including Georgia and Santiago Atitlan. But we all look alike, and I love every one of them. You know, you guys were lucky to find each other the way you did. It wasn't so common for bio siblings to meet like that at the time. But also, finding my siblings all over the map was a sign of what was going on with Guatemala and adoption. You boys were part of the boom. But right around the time we met the McDonald's, things were starting to change in Guatemala in ways that would threaten international adoption, maybe forever. Yeah, because when there's a boom, there has to be a bust. I'm Diego Shikai Luke. I'm Laurie Stern. And from something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is All Relative. Defining Diego. Episode 4, The Fall of International Adoption. So, at the peak of the boom, one of every hundred Guatemalan babies was joining a U.S. family. And actually, by that time, the Guatemalan government already knew adoption was out of control, and they were trying to do something about it. In 2005, Guatemala made a new law that called some adoptions out for what they really were, human trafficking. And the government assigned lawyers to investigate, prosecutors like Julio Prado. El último caso de estos que yo tuve a mi cargo fue un robo de un recién nacido en el hospital his last case involved trying to track down a baby born at Roosevelt Hospital in Guatemala City. Alguien se vistió como enfermera, entró a la a la pediatría y se llevó al niño diciéndole a la mamá que lo iban a vacunar y salió corriendo por las puertas del del hospital. He said someone dressed like a nurse came into the hospital. They told the mother they were taking the baby to get vaccinated. But the fake nurse grabbed the baby and ran away. And the mother never saw her baby again. The cameras in the hospital were so bad, Julio Prado and his team couldn't identify anyone, the mother or the fake nurse. He told us he still thinks of this mother and whether she's wondering where her child is. 
The 2005 law in Guatemala treated adoptions as crimes if their paperwork was faked. And that meant Julio Prado and his fellow prosecutors had some evidence to collect. Cuando se incluyó este nuevo delito, nos tocó hacer un allanamiento, uh, a raid. He and other prosecutors led dozens of raids at children's homes and orphanages. They found a lot of messed up paperwork. But it was difficult, often impossible, to find the people responsible. Julio Prado and his team never solved most of the cases they investigated. He told us no one knows how many irregular adoptions might really have been crimes. After 15 years, he quit working for the government and opened a private practice. In 2022, he published a book. It's a novel, but everything in it is based on things he actually saw. In the book, there were two things I can't forget. Doctors in a hospital would convince a mother to relinquish, then tell her she needed a C-section and give her anesthesia before she could change her mind. Then they'd cut her open and take the baby while she was knocked out. Other times, traffickers would pose as nurses or doctors in the hospital. They would steal the newborns and then tell the mothers that their babies died in childbirth. The hospital would keep dead babies in the freezer to show the birth mother in case she wasn't convinced. When I first read that story, I had to read it over and over because it seemed so grotesque, so unreal that it was hard to imagine let alone that it happened more than once. But it did. You know, that means the idea of bringing new life into the world, it kind of got turned into its opposite. I mean, it got turned into this perverse thing. And I really don't know what to do with that. It's so fucking bleak. The only thing I think you can do is to make sure people never forget so that it never happens again. And actually, there was a group of Guatemalan activists who were determined not to let anyone forget. In 2007, That's Claudia Maria Hernandez. She runs an organization in Guatemala City called Sobrevivientes, or Survivors. Originally, Sobrevivientes helped survivors of domestic abuse. But starting in 2007, they took up another cause. Mothers who had their toddlers kidnapped were asking for their help. Claudia Maria Hernandez could see that thousands of kids were being adopted every year by foreign parents. She wondered, where are all these children coming from? She said foreign adoption treated poor women like criminals just because they were poor. Powerful attorneys used tricks and lies to take children. They bribed judges to rubber stamp adoptions. The system was rigged against these mothers. So... By the mid-2000s, the government had tried a few ways to fix the problems with the adoption system. They tried a second DNA test starting in 2003 and the prosecution of some adoption workers starting in 2005. 
But it wasn't enough. There was always another way to outsmart the system, pay someone off, or fake some more paperwork. It wasn't just a few bad apples. And so Sobrevivientes organized a series of actions, and they got the attention of the press. They worked with prosecutors to go after criminal gangs that kidnapped children and sold them into adoption. They posted flyers with the faces of missing kids. And in 2007, a group of mothers protested at the public prosecutor's office, armed with empty baby strollers and cribs to symbolize their kidnapped children. You know, Julio Prado's prosecutions and the pressure from Sobrevivientes and others, all of that did have an impact. Yeah, and international pressure had built up too. Spain, Sweden, Canada, and Germany all stopped approving adoptions from Guatemala by 2002. So by 2007, the U.S. was one of the very last ones standing. Here's President George W. Bush and Guatemalan President Oscar Berger at a press conference that year. We also talked about adoption. Uh, I don't know if my fellow citizens understand this, but there are a lot of U.S. families who adopt babies from Guatemala, thousands of babies. Just a few months later, in December, Guatemala voted to stop international adoption completely. That law went into effect on January 1st, 2008. International adoption from Guatemala was shut down. I mean, we didn't understand how big of a change that was, even though we were in Guatemala the year it happened. I was 10 years old. And we were in our own little world. My own little world. Santiago Atitlan. More in a bit. Stay with us. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When I look back on those trips to Guatemala when I was a kid, I was just so clueless about the big picture, you know? I had no idea that the trip over winter break when I was 10 was at the exact same time international adoption was shutting down for good. You know, I was clueless too, and I report on this shit, but... I wasn't reporting that time. It was a total vacation. We were with our friends from the Guatemala dinner group. We were just going to have a good time, show them Santiago Atitlan. But, of course, whenever we visit the village, we go see Isabel. So, as always, we asked Dolores, our friend and translator, to help us find her. But Santiago Atitlan is a small town, and we were in for a surprise. I remember we were in our room, and then all of a sudden you told me to hurry up and get down to the hotel restaurant. And when I went down there, there were all these women and kids staring at me. 
Diego, come, come and meet these people. That's she's saying. She's your aunt. That's your grandmother. It was Cristobal's mother. Your biological father. And two of his sisters and their kids. It was our first meeting with anyone from your birth father's side. Everybody cries every time they see you. They'd heard that we were visiting and they'd come to meet you. The women were crying. One by one, they came over to you and stroked your hair, wiping away their tears. The oldest one, your grandmother, she went last. She kissed both of your cheeks and blew on your forehead with this little whistling sound. I had a dream like that once where people kept greeting me and they were just like, One of the sisters took a picture of you on her flip phone, and I thought to myself, now your birth father will know about you. Maybe. At that time, I was just confused, trying to take it all in. You tried to explain it to me in the moment, but how do you explain something like that? It's because they thought you were dead because that's what the man said, because they're related to the man. Who is your biological father? I think just until that moment, Cristobal had been this enigma and someone that didn't really exist. But then there I was looking at his mother. Your eyes were so wide. And like just trying to explain that to you was like we didn't even understand what was going on. Yeah, I mean, it was so quick and random, but um, Dan ended up asking me about it later. They said they thought you were dead? Yeah. What was that like for you? Was that weird? It was kind of weird because I thought everyone thought that I was alive. Because then, like, and my aunts were really happy to see me because they didn't know if Isabel was telling the truth about me being dead. Because she gave me a way that next day I was born. She just wanted to protect me. Man, it's kind of painful to hear that. I mean, how did that strike you? I don't know. I think I've always told myself that, you know, whatever she did, she did to protect me. And, you know, I guess I'm not really sure who's telling the truth and, like, how many truths there actually might be. So, Dan and I, and you, we were clear that Isabel was family. And so we felt a responsibility. Whenever we visited, we pulled together whatever money we could spare, and we'd give it to her in Quetzales. What are we going to do when we find Isabel? Well, we have money, we saved money, and then we're going to find them, Isabel and give her the money. Because she tried to do the best thing for me. But this time, you brought something of your own to give her. Do you remember that? Yeah. Um. It's a freaking napkin holder I, I made in school. A napkin holder. 
out of blue construction paper. It had green feathers and a white snowman glued on. I remember Isabel thought it was a clown. Yeah, I mean, they don't even have snow there. You know, that trip was supposed to be just a fun trip. But when all these hard things came up, Dan asked me about it. We were sitting by the lake. He asked me questions to kind of help me figure stuff out. So that must be very hard for you to feel like you have a family in Minnesota, but you also have a family here. Not that hard. No? No. Do you ever think what it would be like if you had stayed here? Well, she probably couldn't have taken care of me. That question Dan asked me, do I ever think what it would have been like if I had stayed in Guatemala? At the time, I said maybe I'd be hauling wood from the mountain or picking coffee, but I don't really know. But if I had been born 10 years after I was, we wouldn't be here talking about it because adopting me would have been illegal. Starting January 1st, 2008, you couldn't adopt a baby like me. And I really don't think I would be here alive today if I had been born post-shutdown. We'll be right back. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Diego, you know, your adoption paperwork had more than a couple problems. A lot of things that were called irregularities when you were born. You know, less than 10 years later, those same things were called crimes. When I was there in 1999... I heard that it was against the rules for birth mothers to relinquish more than one baby. And I just assumed that you were Isabel's one and only adoption. And that's why I was so shocked when I heard about Carter and Gavin, your birth brothers. So we asked historian Rachel Nolan about that. She said she didn't know of any rule, but she had looked at thousands of adoption records. And almost all of them said it was the birth mother's first child. So that tells me the records were wrong. Because just in the interviews I did, maybe half the birth mothers had relinquished more than one baby. Isabel had relinquished four. That could mean that tens of thousands of records were wrong. But if it was irregular, was it necessarily corrupt? That wasn't clear. Yeah, I mean, to get you home, we paid a lawyer to clear up the confusion about your birth certificate. And we're not sure exactly how he did that. And we didn't ask. We were just so relieved to have you. You didn't ask then, but lots of other people asked in the years that followed, including Julio Prado and Claudio Maria Hernandez, and an American investigative journalist, Aaron Siegel McIntyre. Yeah, a couple years after the shutdown, she wrote a book about a Guatemalan birth mother whose daughter had been kidnapped and put up for adoption. And she exposed a whole network of fraud and illegal activity. That book was a game changer, not only for how people in the U.S. thought about Guatemala, but for international adoption as a whole. 
there was absolutely an outspoken lobby at work. You know, local ministers, churches, adopt an orphan, help widows. There was a huge movement towards adopting as this beautiful, godly endeavor that people should embrace and take on and feel wonderful about that helped everyone. And there wasn't a lot of critical thinking around, well, how does this actually happen and why? And who's on the other end of the spectrum? She's pretty unsparing in her criticism. Honestly, my my opinion is that it's just a bit cringeworthy that American parents would sort of place their own self-interest as what mattered most over literally... I don't even have the words to describe it. It, It's a devastating human rights crisis in a very small, very impoverished, very not powerful nation that they in part created. That may seem pretty harsh, but Professor Nolan actually said a similar thing, that ultimately international adoption in Guatemala didn't have anything to do with the best interests of the child even though that's what everyone said they cared about. I know I should be able to say it was a terrible thing that international adoption was closed, or it was a wonderful thing given all of the abuses and all of the fraud that came before. I think if you are trying to honestly take into account the best interests of the children, which is what everyone says that they are doing, it is a little bit unclear. What is true and what I'm comfortable saying is that the way that international adoptions boomed at their height in Guatemala, is not something that I think anyone who has intimate knowledge of it would care to repeat, given the high levels of fraud and coercion of birth mothers. We can't forget that international adoption came straight out of the Guatemalan Civil War in the 80s and 90s, when the army began poaching children from mostly indigenous communities. During the war, government forces targeted villages like Santiago Atitlan. They burned some down, and they raped and massacred people who lived in them. Sometimes, the soldiers that massacred entire villages were the same people who took orphans home and raised them as their own. The Civil War lasted for 36 years. When it was finally over, a UN-backed commission looked into the damage. The Truth Commission found that 5,000 children were forcibly disappeared during the war. 5,000 children. And the Truth Commission was able to trace at least 500 of those children to adoption. Professor Nolan made a link between adoption and genocide. She said historians started using a five-point definition of genocide after World War II. The first act that could be defined as genocide is familiar to everyone, which is killing members of a certain group. What is less well-known is that the fifth act that qualifies for genocide is forcible adoption of children from a certain group to another group. In other words, the forced adoption of children out of their culture is an act of genocide. And according to this commission, that happened in Guatemala. So what does that mean for the thousands of Guatemalan children adopted under dubious circumstances? Diego, that is a hard one to sit with. I mean, we know that Isabel relinquished you knowingly, right? Right. But, you know, when you adopted me, 
people didn't think very deeply about what it meant to take a kid from one culture to another. It was kind of just assumed if the kid was loved, everything would be okay. I mean, that was you too, right? Kinda, yeah. But the cultural lens has shifted in the last 23 years. And now we see the cost to communities and cultures. I mean, I couldn't and wouldn't do it again today. For me, I've always felt like I sort of missed out on what it means to grow up Sutuhil. What would it have meant for my birth family to keep me? I think for me, part of it is obviously I felt this guilt, like I'm not a contributing member to the Sutuhil community. And like, I won't really pass their traditions down, but I'm really happy and proud to know that in Santiago Atitlan, they're still maintaining their traditions. They're still passing down the language. They're still doing all these things. So regardless of whether or not I can or can't contribute to this community, the community will be there long after I'm gone. Diego, sometimes I feel like the shutdown was like a judgment about our family on how I got you from Santiago Atitlan to St. Paul and whether any of it should have happened. The shutdown was such a big final thing. It felt like an answer, like a big fat no. I mean, it kind of was, right? I know you feel this thing and I do too, but I can see why it happened. I can see it too. But I can also see that maybe with better guardrails and more regulation, it wouldn't have had to happen. You know, no country in the world is sending its babies out for foreign adoption anymore. Most people agree that the best interests of the child are keeping them in their own communities. Meanwhile, my generation was growing up wherever we happened to land because of who adopted us. Like, my life and our family didn't shut down in 2008. I was just a fourth grader. Yeah, and in fourth grade, you were doing Minnesota things like hockey and fishing and stuff. But when you became a teenager, all our questions about where you belong, they were challenged in ways we couldn't imagine. And the fact that I happened to land in the U.S. and didn't stay in Guatemala like my older siblings, well, that was about to make the difference between life and death. time on All Relative, Defining Diego. My birthday was the stupidest, dumbest birthday that sucked. Like, and I'm always going to remember. I mean, I can't feel it, but... Uh, when you say you can't, you can't feel what? The kidneys, like, go. Right. So, uh, thank you guys for coming in today. We do have some information back on the biopsy that he had from the lymph node. That's when it hit me. It's like, oh my God, he could die, and this could be the end of his life. Unlock all episodes of All Relative Defining Diego ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge, our new podcast channel. 
Subscribers immediately get ad-free binge access to this show and all the others included on the Binge channel with brand new stories dropping every month. That's all episodes all at once. Start your free trial to the binge by visiting the all-relative Defining Diego show page on Apple Podcasts or getthebinge.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. All Relative, Defining Diego is a production of Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Lori Stern. And me, Diego Shikai Luke. Mia Warren is our senior producer. Associate producers are India Whitkin and Kyra Asabe Bonsu. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Jude Kampfner, and Tom Koenig. Lizzie Jacobs is our editor, and we had additional editorial help from Megan Dietrich on this episode. Dara Hirsch is our engineer. And we had additional mixing by Sam Baer. Our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Production management help from Ike Igbatola and Lily Hambly. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Our adoptee consultant is Eric Mann. Special thanks to my dad, Dan Luke. We couldn't have done it without you. You did so much to help us. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.